Hello and welcome to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. Oats for Breakfast is a podcast affiliated with The Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization in Toronto. I am your co-host, Sia, and I'm sitting with... Patrick. Hi. <laughs> I'm replacing Umer. He uh, wants to disassociate himself momentarily. I will be uh, helping and co-hosting from time to time. Right. So as, as you all know from listening to us, you are an organizational podcast. Um, so we have a lot of great people that we'd like to bring in as hosts from time to time to get different perspectives and different takes on things. And Patrick has very generously volunteered to step in for Umer for a few episodes. So we're talking to Sarah Evans, who is a part of the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. There's a uh, overdose crisis in uh, Toronto right now, and um, the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society is trying to reduce the number of overdose overdose deaths in the, the city by um, offering people spaces where they can safely use their drugs in a controlled environment. Yeah, and so as Sarah kind of details um, what these uh, sites offer are things like clean syringes, trained personnel that can administer first aid in case you do overdose, and just an overall supportive environment where people don't feel like they need, they're judged or that they're looked at differently because they are taking drugs. And this is as a response to a current opioid crisis, an overdose crisis that's going on in Canada, where uh, currently we have 17 people who are dying of opioids every single day. It's come to the point where the number of people who are dying uh, due to opioid-related overdoses is the leading now the leading cause of death uh, among people between the ages of 30 to 39 years old. So it's a very serious crisis. Yeah, those numbers you're reciting are absolutely startling. Yeah, exactly. And I think the reaction to the crisis has been woefully inadequate, which has kind of forced activists like Sarah Evans to step in and create institutions and organizations which can address it. So I'm um, looking forward to hearing uh, Sarah's insights on the matter. What do you think? Should we cut to the interview, Sia? Let's go. Okay. Really happy to have Sarah Evans here. She's a social worker and a member of the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, what do you do and what does your organization do? My profession is a social worker. Um, the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society is the organization that I work with, and we do a lot of different things around trying to address the overdose crisis that we're currently dealing with. But we're probably most well known for having opened the first supervised consumption site in Ontario. Um, and that was the Moss Park Overdose Prevention Site that we opened in tents in Moss Park in downtown Toronto uh, last summer. Mm-hmm. And so when you say consumption site, 
supervised consumption sites are places where people come and consume pre-obtained drugs. So unfortunately, we don't provide the drugs. People bring their own drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but we provide a safe, clean, comfortable setting where people are able to consume those drugs. And so they're, they can kind of take their time. They're not worried about um, getting arrested or getting caught. And if they do overdose, then we are there and we're able to respond. And often that's just by using oxygen um, and sometimes also naloxone, which is a right. drug that reverses opiate overdoses. You were kind of mentioning how um, TOPS was a response to the overdose crisis. Could you give us kind of like a brief history background of like the context in which you guys came up, what you were responding to, what you guys felt wasn't what should have been happening that wasn't happening and help us go through a bit of what the, the process was there? Yeah, definitely. Um so, I mean, I think most people have heard by now that we are in the midst of, um, I would say, the biggest public health crisis in a generation, probably a couple generations. Um, when you look at sort of March 2016 to March 2018, uh, there's been over 8,000 deaths in Canada from opiate overdoses. So, you know, these, these overdose deaths are something that our communities have been seeing for many years, and things really, really have been escalating hugely over the past few years. And there was a weekend in July of last summer where um, six people died of overdoses within like a 10 minute walk of the Moss Park area. Mm. Um, and a number of us were called into another meeting with um, city officials and public health officials. And we went into this meeting really thinking like, okay, they're, they're going to start talking about some serious action. They're going to talk about a plan. They're going to talk about recognizing the, the crisis that we're in. And we just left that meeting being like, wow, nobody is mm. doing anything. Um, and it really was a, a sense of desperation for the most part that, that made us finally say we cannot not do this for another day. So many of us have just lost so many people, so many friends and coworkers and clients and, and just dealt with so much grief that we at that point were like we have nothing left to lose like we have to do something and there's something that can be done that we know that it works overdose deaths are completely preventable deaths people don't have to die of overdoses mm -hmm. and so we we left that meeting and decided um we put up a, a crowdfunding campaign that day and started raising money for some tents and some supplies and about a week later we opened our tent in moss park we definitely had no idea when we started that we would be in that park providing that service for 11 months with volunteers. I never would have dreamed that it would go that long. But we really wanted to show that all of the bureaucracy and all of the red tape and all of the kind of hand-wringing and hemming and hawing that was happening was just totally out of touch with the reality that people were dealing with and the fact that so many people are dying and these deaths are preventable and we can stop them. One thing that's uh, interesting about the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society is that um, people who are using the services are also involved in the management of the services. Is that right? Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? You know, people that use drugs um, and people that are poor, 
it's a it's a daily part of life to have to seek out services that don't listen to you, that don't care what you want, that don't care how you want to get help or how you want to get these services. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of stigma. And for us, from the first day that we were in Moss Park, people that came to use the services became volunteers and became people that were part of running and providing the services. And I think part of that, um, you know, people had a lot of ownership over this, partly because they were literally building it every day, like physically building this service themselves. And so people felt like this is our thing. We're doing this together. We can decide what we want it to look like. We can decide what what kind of experience we want people to have when they come here. And also being volunteers kind of takes away that division between um, like the paid staff that are providing this service and the people that are accessing the service. We also, we actually had a no managers rule from the beginning. (laughs) Um, So we didn't allow people that were managers of any kind of harm reduction program where people might either be working or accessing services. Those people weren't allowed to volunteer with us. And that that had some really practical um, reasons behind it. You know, the this kind of disconnect in harm reduction for a long time, um, like needle exchanges, for example. Needle exchanges are pretty well established and they're all over the place and people can go and pick up clean supplies, but then they're told to leave. It's like, you need to use new gear every time. You need to come get these supplies, take them, go, like be out of sight. We don't want to see you. If you are shooting up in the bathroom, you're going to be kicked out of here. And so part of that was, you know, we don't want these managers that are the ones that are like enforcing those things to then be working side by side with people that might've been kicked out of those places. Okay. Um, and also what, what we were doing was illegal and not everybody felt comfortable like doing illegal things with their managers. Um, but yeah, I think it, it really created an amazing space where it was the people that were using these services were the ones that were deciding how they wanted them to look and how they were going to be provided. And it's been really transformative for everybody, I think, that has been a part of it, either using the services or volunteering there or, or both. Um, and so you guys went through a lot of trouble trying to get this funded through government. So you went through the, all the bureaucratic red tape, dealing with municipal and provincial levels um, to try to get funding and approval uh, for this prevention site. So why go through all the trouble? Why not just seek out donations from the public? Yeah, I mean, um, we were really amazed by the support that we had from just people. Um, we've raised, I think, over $150,000 online yeah. at this point so GoFundMe. Um, on, on GoFundMe. And um, people were showing up from the first day that we were there and wanting to help. But doing it with volunteers in a tent, I mean, providing a health service in a tent is crazy. Like we didn't have running water. We, we weren't able to wash our hands. Like it's really basic things that we weren't able to do. We didn't have a bathroom. We didn't have a floor. We were on like a grass floor the wind would blow and our tents would blow away. Um, And so on the one hand, we kind of showed like this is actually very easy to do and everybody should be doing it. But also it's really hard to do without it being funded and supported on the level that like any other healthcare service would be. And we also knew that all kinds of communities across Ontario are really being affected by this crisis and we wanted them to be able to do it too. So we that was a big part of what we were doing was working with uh, the previous Liberal government and the Ministry of Health to develop a framework that would get rid of a lot of that red tape and make it much easier to open these sites quickly where they were needed. Um, a lot of like the advocacy that we were doing was around partly just forcing the government to like step up and take action on this crisis, which they were being really slow to do, but also 
to work with them to say the current framework for opening one of these services is way too difficult. It's way too bureaucratic, too much red tape. Um, and so we worked with them to create a new framework by which organizations could like much more quickly and easily apply both for permission to open one of these sites and for funding to open these sites. And so under the previous liberal government, um, they did come out with that framework. Um, and since then, there's 18 sites have opened across the province using like the framework, like funded sites have opened across the province using the framework that we helped work on. So on the one hand, we were doing this service for free with volunteers for almost a year, but we also worked to make sure that other people could apply for funding and get funded to do it. Um, and we have since done that same application and were approved. And so now we've moved indoors around the corner from Moss Park and we're paying people to, to do it. Um, in that initial um, period, I guess you were speaking with um, the municipality. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And what, what was sort of their pushback? Because you said they didn't really, they didn't seem too keen on it. What, what were you hearing from them? Why were they against this idea? And maybe you can also touch on like you know what the current uh, pushback is from the conservatives sure. as well. Yeah. Um, what was interesting, I think, for me throughout this whole process was um, just seeing how you view, I mean, maybe you don't, but theoretically you view politicians as like leaders in some ways. Um, But what was so clear was that they were just these kind of playing this like cowardly role of like falling behind and people having to actually be the leaders and force every step that they would take. And so it was the massive amount of support from the public that I think really forced the politicians to come around and to, to make it clear that it was going to be really untenable for them in the midst of this crisis to, to try and shut something like this down. Mm-hmm. Honestly, the police and not so much like the rank and file, but the police leadership, I think, had kind of come around the most. And mm-hmm. I think that's partly because they are the ones that are enforcing these drug laws and they're the ones that are responding to 911 mm-hmm. calls and they have just seen how ineffective that approach is. Um, we also had visits from um, John Tory came and visited our site. Kathleen Wynn came and visited our site. Eric Hoskins came and visited our site. Um, you know, we were the first ones outside of, of Vancouver to be doing this. And so a lot of people came and once they saw what we were doing, they real and talked to people that were using the service and, and that were volunteering with the service, they really realized like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that helped them to come around and to kind of force force this forward. The current government's response has been different and has been really disheartening. I mean, I think for a lot of us, we, um, you know, 2016 and 2017 were like some of the hardest years we've ever been through, just losing so many people. And it felt really good when we started doing something and started um, actually you know, we in, in the 11 months that we were in Moss Park, we reversed over 250 overdoses. Like, we were saving lives. And it felt like we were really moving things forward. Um, and the attack that we're under now feels very hopeless in a way because it, it just – I mean, I didn't want to be still fighting for these services mm-hmm. a year later. We wanted to get these going and move on to the next thing because we know that these services aren't actually going to end the overdose crisis. We need to do a lot more to end the overdose crisis. But um, the conservative government, they obviously have an aggressive austerity agenda, but 
even just from a financial perspective, right. the evidence on these services is very clear. They save money. They lead to savings for the healthcare system. They lead to better health for people in all these ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, it's kind of an ideological um, attack. Yeah. So right now, the the health minister, Christine Elliott, has uh, said she's putting a pause on them. But it's not like a definite thing whether they'll be completely defunded. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Um, I don't know when this podcast will come out. I'm not. Uh, I'm not optimistic. Okay. Yeah, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. So right now, what's how is the organization sustained? So you're saying you you guys kind of moved out of Moss Park. You have a building now, and what's um, how are you guys operating then? Do you get a grant from the? Uh, no, so we um, the Moss Park site that we were operating applied um, for an exemption and applied for funding, and so that is now like a lot of other health services. It's it's inside. Um, it's paid staff. A lot of the um, people that were volunteering with us in the park, including um, a huge number of our volunteers, were people that actually used the service in Moss Park. And so a lot of those people are now being paid to to do that work in Moss Park. At the same time. I mean, first of all, we're back in a tent now in Parkdale as a result of this freeze that the conservatives have put on this. Um, there was a an overdose prevention site was scheduled to open in Parkdale. And like the Friday before the Monday it was going to open, the conservatives announced their freeze. Um, and the same thing the police put out, um, the, the police in that area actually put out uh, an alert that weekend um, that I think seven people had died in that immediate area in 12 days of overdoses. And so we got out our tents and we got out our battery packs and um, went back to it in, in a park in Parkdale. We're still really depending on donations for um, some of our other activities. So, you know, the Moss Park site is funded, but a lot of the other stuff that we're doing we have a GoFundMe, which um, everybody should check out. It's For the sure. Toronto Overdose we'll Prevention Society. <laughs> um, and we, we do still really need um, support from the public for that. You know, there's a bit of, there's a homelessness crisis in Toronto too. And um, I would imagine there's an overlap between some of the people who are homeless and who uh, rely on, on you guys as well. I always kind of want to make the distinction that like the, the stereotype that people have about who uses drugs is, is wrong. Usually um, people across all sectors of society use all kinds of drugs in all different ways. But yeah, when you look at Moss Park, for example, the people that were using our service there are also, um, a lot of them are homeless. A lot of them are dealing with a, a lot of other issues. I mean, most of us came, most of us that were involved with running this site or working at this site, we came to that because we, because of our background in in harm reduction and in working with people who use drugs and, and also all the other issues that people face. And so, yeah, you can't really separate those things. And, and that's a huge thing that I think needs to be a part of our response if we want to actually get anywhere with this is the fact that like, again, overdose prevention sites are not going to solve this problem. Right. Um, and dealing with the underlying conditions that cause people suffering, that cause people harm, that cause people to be unsafe, we need to start looking at those things if we ever want to actually have an impact on the situation. And um, what do you think decriminalization would do to kind of contribute to that? Yeah, um, we're we're always trying to talk about decriminalization um, and the fact that criminalization is is responsible for so many of um, the harms that we're seeing now. Um, 
you know, a, a criminalized market is what has led to this crisis. And that has to be a part of what, what we do. And um, I think, you know, we've had this war on drugs for so many years. It doesn't work. Like you want to talk about evidence reviews. You want to talk about looking at what actually works. The war on drugs has not worked. It has not stopped people from using drugs, making drugs, selling drugs, getting drugs. And so we'd like to be talking about decriminalization. Um, and I think the, the way that people can really understand it best is a regulated market is like something like alcohol. So I can go to the beer store and I can buy a beer and it's going to be the same every time I do. I'm going to know what I'm getting. I'm going to know how it's going to affect me. I'm going to know how one or three or four is going to affect me. And so I can make my own decisions about how I want to use it and how to keep myself safe. Um, right now, when you buy drugs on the street, you just don't know what you're getting. And so people are much more vulnerable to to the risk of overdose. But also because of criminalization, people are less able to defend against those risks. So, you know, you, you don't have to die of an overdose. But if you're alone when you're using because you're hiding, um, because you don't want to be caught by the police, because your family is going to mm -hmm. be judging you for it, um, then there's not going to be anyone there to help when you overdose. But yeah, I think also like we can see with alcohol, you know, a lot of people are able, just like with drugs, I think in a, in a regulated market, a lot of people can use alcohol in a way that is safe and that doesn't cause them any problems in their lives. So you can have a drink on the weekend and that's fine and that's a healthy thing. But there are also people who use alcohol in ways that aren't healthy or that do cause problems in their lives. And I think that's where you get to the fact that, you know, if we are not addressing the the underlying things that cause people to um, to have pain, to have suffering that they want to get away from and that they're seeking refuge from, then drugs are still going to be one of the best ways that people have to deal with those kinds of pain because mm -hmm. there's not a lot of alternatives available to deal with the trauma that they have and the mental health issues that they have and, and just the difficulty of like being poor, being racialized, being like all these different things that impact people in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So why harm reduction? Why not harm elimination? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like the war on drugs does not work. Trying to stop people from using drugs doesn't work. Um, people have used substances to change the way that they feel for thousands and thousands of years. And it is a hard thing for some people to wrap their head around. But harm reduction, to me, it, it means it's an approach that has to do with autonomy and respecting people's freedom and respecting people's choices and letting people make the choices that they want to make with as much information and choices as possible. So rather than trying to tell somebody what they should do, um, I don't think you should do that in general, but also it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, we want to empower people to be able to to make those choices for themselves. And also, you know, we kind of come from a perspective that like there's nothing wrong with drug use necessarily. People right. want to use drugs. Drugs are fun. Drugs are good for a lot of different things. And what people need is to to be able to to make choices for themselves and to be able to live healthy and live safe no matter what different choices they're making. Okay. Yeah. So it feels also that you've removed yourself from the moral discussion, the moral dimension of drug use. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there is a moral um, – okay. anybody that drinks alcohol and wants to like pass moral judgment on people for using any kind of drugs, I just think they need to like stop and think about themselves for a minute. Um, it's just – I think it's really arbitrary for us to have decided that, you know, this substance is okay and this substance is not okay and this substance is respectable and this one's not and this one makes you a bad person. 
I just don't don't really buy into any of that, and I think it's it's not helpful and it's not uh, realistic. Mm-hmm. If you were to um, have your your wish list going forward, what kind of things do you want to see? Ideally, whether I don't know, you can tell the government or non-government. What what do you think? What would you like to see going forward? The first thing is to stop attacking these services. These services are an emergency measure. It's like basic first aid and they need to be everywhere because people are dying when they're using alone. Um, and so we need these services to be all over the place and to be accessible to anybody that needs them and decriminalization and a regulated supply. And I mean, we, there are pilots of things like actually prescription heroin programs where people can go and pick up their heroin from a clinic a couple times a day. Um, and what you see when they have like a clean, safe supply that they're able to access is it's, oh, it like it wasn't the heroin that was the problem. Like maybe they were having a lot of problems because the cops were constantly coming after them and because they were having to, you know, make money in various ways to support this because they're poor and they don't have what they need to live. So things that allow people to have access to a clean and safe supply. Um, but then, yeah, it's a much bigger things that are needed if we want to actually see this change, which is hard to think about sometimes because we want to see this change so badly. Like we have lost so many people and we don't want to keep losing people, but we also know that like we need so much to change. And in this moment of of just defending against these cuts, it feels really hard to even imagine that. But, you know, in a dream world, um, a, a social safety net that works, that protects people, um, that gives people what they need, not just the basic things that they need to live and be safe, like having enough food and having a safe place to live and an affordable and a clean place to live, um, but ways that deal with trauma and mental health and pain that are not punitive, that are supportive, that allow people to have choice and allow people to to choose for themselves what what's going to help them do do you think that addiction would still exist in in such a world? I mean, I, I I think I always kind of want people to question the term addiction and what it means. Some people think that anybody that uses an illegal substance is an addict. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's really a helpful way of of looking at it. But there are definitely people who use substances in in ways that are difficult and that are problematic for them. And I think that that is going to exist as long as we have pain and suffering and we don't have alternative ways for people to deal with that pain and suffering. Sure. Um, there's this this um, kind of experiment that um, I always like people to look at when they're trying to re-examine the ways that they think about drugs and about drug use. Um, a lot of these studies that were done initially with rats, where rats in a cage would continually, you know, press a button to get morphine, to get some kind of substance, and they'd waste away. And mm-hmm. um, it was like, oh, these substances are so addictive. They're going to, anybody that uses them is going to become addicted and is going to care about nothing else but that. But there was this guy who decided to redo some of those experiments, but instead of having a rat in a cage by itself with nothing to do except get Mm. some morphine, he made this kind of like dream world for rats called Rat Hmm. Park. And so um, (laughs) there was access to um, morphine and other substances, but also... The rats were able to live communally. They were Mm. able to have all kinds of different things to do. They had things to play with and things to exercise on. And um, they were able to be with 
each other. And also if they wanted, they could go and access these substances. And it was completely different in a setting like that. So most of the rats would try this and a lot of them would seem like they enjoyed it. And once in a while they'd come back to it, but it just didn't happen the same way that it did in in these other experiments. And so what he kind of took from that was like, we think that it is qualities inherent to these substances that make Mm -hmm. them like addictive and that make them ruin people's lives. But actually when people have what they need to be happy and healthy and safe, they can use these substances in the ways that they want to. And it doesn't really cause problems for them. And it's more about what, what people don't have that that affects how that looks. So I always like people to to look that one up. We were talking about this, Patrick, and our favorite part of the interview was the rat story. Yeah, I agree. I I found the rat story... um quite a good uh, summary of, I think, what we're trying to get at more broadly speaking in terms of um, socialist uh, approach to this kind of drug addiction. I do want to just say, though, before before following that up, you know, we talk about socialized, so-called socialized healthcare in Canada, and that's supposed to be a, a compassionate approach to healthcare, but there's a serious lack of compassion when it's so difficult to organize initiatives to help treat this senseless overdose deaths that are occurring. So that being said, I think um, the rat, uh, what did she call it? Rat story? Rat town? It was, it was called Rat Park. But yeah. Rat Park. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. what it was. I think she really hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we need to support these stopgap measures, such as the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. And if you'd like to support them, you can find their GoFundMe page at gofundme.com forward slash Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. And thank you for listening to the Oats for Breakfast podcast. If you would like to support our breakfast-themed podcast, although I'm told oats may be had at any time of the day, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. All right, well, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.